some Kleenexes just in case. So um, if you know anything about me, I am a very emotional person. So I hope and pray that you'll give me a little grace today as I go through my message because it really comes from my heart, um, some things I deal with. But before I get into it, um, in the past few weeks, uh, we've heard a lot of messages, as Rob last week was talking about, and these are some really big shoes to fill. And so again, I hope that you will give me a little grace. I'm not a Bible scholar or probably not even a, I wouldn't consider myself biblically literate, okay? Um, I had scripture shoved down my throat uh, growing up as a kid. I uh, didn't really learn how to walk it. Um, it's there, and so I hope that I can pull from it. God will Lead, lead, me, lead me through all this. I, again, that, that song there was more for me than it was for you all because I need Jesus' hand right now. So um, as I, as I, let me, I guess, introduce myself a little bit because I know we have some new members as I alluded to earlier. Uh, again, my name is Timothy Bowley, and I do go by Timothy. There's a kind of caveat with that. Uh, it's one of those ways that I can get other people who don't know me to hold me accountable. And what I mean by that is when I got baptized, as they did in Old Testament, I went from Tim to Timothy. So when I, have, when I introduce myself, I always introduce myself as Timothy so that when people say that, I'm immediately clicking back to, okay, I'm a Christian, don't mess this up, okay? So with that, I'm also married to a wonderful, beautiful wife, <laughs> Debbie Kay. And we both, some of you may not know this, but we both lost our previous spouses nine years ago. Um, we were both married for a long period of time, but we both lost in different situations. So, and this is actually my second go around being in a blended family. Now, I don't know if you know what, how, how that works. It's, all, it's, all, it's messy. Life is messy as it is, but you would do a blended family, and that's really hard. But with that... Um, comes a lot of reward with it. Caring for someone else's children is a lot, but it's a lot of reward comes along with it when that, those connections are made. Some of you might have seen me in my work clothes, the green, uh, kind of fluorescent green that I wear on Wednesday nights typically. Uh, this has the Mr. Fix-It on the back of my shirt. Uh, that's what I've been called for several years now. Um, so I also do interpersonal counseling here in Jeffersonville. I do anger management counseling. I do drug and alcohol recovery and talk about domestic violence also. And in that area here in Jeffersonville, I have seen a lot of families and personal struggles with people who have felt alone. And God has blessed me so much, and I can only say that within the last few years as, as I continue to grow in, in that is that he actually blessed me to go through all this pain in my life so that I could help these people with all their different struggles. Now, that's a, that's a, that's a mouthful for me to say because I look back and I go, man, I was messing it up from the very get-go. But now that I'm really on the path that I believe that God wants me, I have a different perspective of what I went through and what I learned through those, those scenarios. I've been homeless. I have slept under a bridge. I've gone hungry. I have I've done a lot of different things in my life that have made me feel alone from time to time. So if you would, be turning in your Bibles into Luke 15. And um, 
I'm not going to read a whole lot of scriptures um, just because of for for time uh, issues, but I am going to go highlight a few things along the way. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Have you ever felt alone, even though you were a part of a family, and or maybe once your family was gone, maybe you're um, maybe you're an empty nester, maybe you're a widow or a widower. Have you ever felt alone away from a, a part of your family? Maybe uh, as myself, and as I'll talk about a little bit later, uh, spending time in a reha uh, rehabilitation center when I, uh, when I broke my pelvis. Uh, felt very alone there a lot of nights. The, my family would leave, friends would leave, and then you just sort of feel, what's next? Uh, wasn't able to walk when I came out of there. I had to go home to learn those things. But it's really... It's amazing how we can we look through scriptures and see how many people feel alone. So again, this is the story of the prodigal son, and uh, we, we can see a few things as we go through this, that um, the story is that the son leaves home with a, a he asks his dad for an, part of his portion of the inheritance. So the father grants this wish and gives it to him. Then the son leaves. Now, the question then becomes, how much money did he actually get? And the only reason that's important, I think, is because... How quickly could he go through it? So we see in verse um, 17 that my, many, how many of my father's hired servants have food to, to spare? So he had a lot of servants. So he probably had quite a bit of money, which means if he, depending upon the inheritance part of it, because it's usually you get that when you die, how much did he actually give his son? And then how much time did it take before his son actually spent all this money got on, on, on into hardship, and then ended up slopping hogs. And I know a lot about slopping hogs, and ask me sometime and I'll share that with you, but that's a story for another time. But it's that idea that he probably felt really alone. I mean, slopping hogs, no family. He's recalling back to his family, his home, and it's like, wow, it's just how hard do you have to get before you can turn around and go home or be a part back into that family. I'm, not, I'm sure he felt alone, but what about what the father felt? We don't really hear a whole lot about that, but we know that the father was, was, was looking for him day in and day out because it says there in chapter, or excuse me, verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the story goes on. It talks about the, the fatted calf and they have this big feast and this, the, old, the, the older son is, is just total, in total dismay over what's going on. But think about while the son is gone. This is my baby boy who has gone out into the world with a lot of money. What's he going to do with it? Is he going to be okay? What if he gets robbed? What if he's not secured with it. They didn't have credit cards back then, so he's carrying around this big bag of money, I would assume. It would be easy for a thief to see him and knock him over the head and be gone, right? But days, weeks, maybe even months go by before he comes home. So I'm sure, although, this, again, the father had this older sibling at home who was taking care of helping him out around the, around the farm and these things, I still can imagine that the father still felt like a part of him was missing. 
Now, see, I can relate to both sides of this because growing up in a household with, I had a younger sister, but I had two older brothers. Well, it didn't really matter how good I was because I was never going to measure up to one. And it really didn't matter how bad I was other than the punishment I got because I was always told, don't end up like that one. And so the idea is that even though we can be a part of that, a family, we can kind of feel pushed aside or set apart, alone. No one really understands. A lot of different things can go through your mind. But as a father, in different capacities, now, I'm going to let you in on a little bit more of my life. Um, I am a biological, I have two biological children. I have a son and a daughter or, um, that are grown. I have, from my previous marriage, I have two stepchildren that are even older than my son. And I am currently a stepfather or bonus dad is what I like to call it. Two, three wonderful children with Debbie K that are also grown and just recently married. So in different capacities, different places in their life, I've been able to guide and direct them a little bit or a lot depending upon what we were going through. So again, not having their connection, not having them in the household, some separation between the, my biological uh, sibling, or not sibling, my biological children and myself, you, you kind of feel that fatherhood sort of maybe not the right place, but... I think God's got me there for a reason, so I'm hoping that I'm trying to make a change and move in that right direction, but it still feels incomplete. So there are plenty of times when in that, in that area of my life as fatherhood that I do feel alone, that I feel a struggle. I feel that maybe I haven't quite measured up to what a father should be. So I would like, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to turn over to um, Genesis chapter 29. You don't have to turn there because it's chapter 29, chapter 30. We're going to talk about Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. And that's where I'm going to spend the majority of my time this morning is talking about each one of these um, people through Scripture. So, excuse me. And basically, if you know anything about the story of uh, Jacob, Rachel, and Leah, basically, Jacob falls in love with Rachel. He um, just makes a, an agreement with Leban, Ra uh, Rachel, and Leah's father to work for seven years so that he could marry Rachel. Well, on the wedding night, seven years later into this, uh, Laban tricks Jacob and inserts Leah into his life. And then he makes another agreement to work another seven years for Levin to earn Rachel's hand, which he's already worked for seven years. But if you think about, again, seven years working for the hand that you want, the, the, the loved one that you want, spending that time investing into a relationship for it to be yanked out from underneath you. I can imagine Jacob felt pretty alone at that time. Like, I mean, wow, man, I'm, I'm being tricked here. I'm not just tricked, but I'm kind of stuck. 
In that time, you didn't just walk away from a, a marriage. You didn't just go to the justice of peace or the attorney and file for divorce. It was this idea that you were in it for the long haul. And so the idea that Jacob had done all this, worked 14 years, I can imagine that Jacob felt alone. And we know, though, that Jacob's, uh, excuse me, Jacob says in verse 20 of chapter 29 that, but they seemed like a few days to him. His love allowed him to endure 14 years of labor just for the woman of his dreams. And I wonder sometimes for us, how much are we willing to endure for our love in Jesus Christ? But that's a message, that's a message for another, another time. So what about Rachel, though? We don't know a whole lot about her, hear a lot about her. But we do know that, uh, how she felt a little bit. I mean, we can imagine how she felt. That she's sitting around for seven years hoping that she's going to be be allowed to pass over her sister because she was the youngest one to be married first. But then seven years comes along. She's ready for that big day, I'd imagine, and yet there's no payoff for her. Now, again, we don't hear that she was upset. We don't hear that she was frustrated. We don't hear anything about what she did other than the fact that seven more years... She's with Jacob. But I can imagine again hoping for seven years that this is going to come to fruition and it falling short. I can imagine she's upset with her father that he's tricked not only Jacob but her, taking her out of this dream that she had, this wedding and all these things that she could have and... Um, how that would have come across to her with that. I'm sure she felt alone for the next seven years, the second seven years, going, okay, I mean, what's dad going to do now? And what if Jacob quit? I can't do it. <laughs> seven was enough. Oh, my gosh. Well, all right, well, okay, let's do it one more time. I love her, I love her with all my heart. But eight years in, nine years in, and who, I mean, Laban, who knows what kind of labor he's got him doing? I mean, beyond slopping the hogs, I mean, he could be having him build houses, dig trenches, whatever it may be. He's got him hooked because he's in love. But we'll let's turn our eyes towards Leah. And I think we've all heard the story and, and, and understand some things, but it's amazing to me that in verse 17 it says that Leah had weak eyes. Now, it's not that she needed glasses, but that she wasn't as beautiful. And if you look at the commentary, it says that she wasn't as beautiful as Rachel. And I wonder, did she hear that her entire life? that you're not as beautiful as Rachel. You don't measure up to your younger, to your, to your, um, younger sister. Yes, you're the older one, and all those things will come to you, but you know, you're just not as pretty as Rachel. Not just from her father, 
but from the, the, the townspeople, did they favor Rachel over Leah? I mean, Scripture tells us for a reason. And again, I'm not trying to add to it. I'm just sort of thinking you know, through, the, through the, in between the lines that this could have been, been part of it. And then it just goes on in chapter 29 to talk about some of the things that once Leah was, was married to Jacob, what she went through to try to win his approval. So we see in chapters, or excuse me, verse 32 to 35, that she had become pregnant. She gave, um, she gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. It is because of the Lord has seen my misery that surely my husband will love me now. Wow. To name your child because of the misery you're going through. Because I don't feel loved. I'm sure I feel alone. And we don't know if this is at the time that uh, Rachel is now married but I would assume probably so because we understand that Rachel was unable to give birth, to give children. So she's like, okay, I'll step up and I'll give Jacob what he wants, what every man back then wanted. And probably some of the men today would love to have a son to carry on the lineage. So she has one. Then she has another. She calls him Simon because the Lord heard that I have not loved he gave me this one also. Wow. So she gets pregnant. There's nine months. She has a son. And she probably goes through some time going, okay, Jacob's going to love me now. No. Not yet. And so she gets pregnant again. Nine more months. She has Simon. She's waiting around, okay, Jacob, time to man up. Time to show me that you love me, you care for me, you married me. Well, did, did he? Right? He was trying to marry Rachel. Ended up with Leah. So she has a third child, another son, named him Levi. It says, now at last, she's getting desperate here, my husband will become attached to me. Sounds like a cry for help. Sounds like she's feeling pretty lonely, left out. I mean, she's got two kids already. That's enough, right? Probably overwhelming more than it is enough. She wants to feel connected, be a part of this family, to, love, to feel loved by this man who loved another. And finally, she has a fourth child. In verse 35, it says, and she named him Judah. This time, I will praise the Lord. So she quit worrying about Jacob and started taking matters under her own hand and said, I'm going to follow God. Now, I would imagine at that time, she probably didn't feel as alone, but I would imagine even in her walk, as most of us can from time to time, felt alone because she felt disconnected still from Jacob. It didn't change his ways towards her. Now, see, again, I can relate to this. As I mentioned earlier, I was previously married. And in that marriage, some things had happened. We were living a world of total disarray. And I don't want to get into a lot of that today because it would definitely change the way that you all would feel about me. 
But to kind of glance over it, basically, we had to give up because I got injured. Uh, and my foot was crushed, and they told me that I would never um, be able to do construction again. God showed them wrong. But going back to college meant federal grants and federal loans. So we had to quit um, breaking the law and felonies. Because if I lost that funding to go to college, then I wasted my time and effort in college because it would be pulled away from me. So in changing who, what we were doing and changing that revenue coming in impacted my marriage drastically. She hated the fact that I had gone back to college even though she was the one that helped push me to go, go to college because in that growth of knowledge and the vocabulary, those words that came home, she would give me that look like, huh? I said, well, you don't understand that? Well, don't talk to me like I'm stupid. No, I just, you didn't seem like you understood what I was saying. She didn't like the fact that, again, the money that was gone now because, yeah, unfortunately, it is very lucrative to deal drugs. But as we continue to, to make this change in our lives, God reentered into my life. He actually sent a, a guy to knock on my door, and I started inviting him in because at this point, I'm re-injured again. Uh, I fell off my roof uh, on Mechanic Street and broke my pelvis, what they call, what they call a floating pelvis. Both sides broke open, and they bolted it back together until I could heal and now, one of the, it actually is the most excruciating pain that I have ever been in, and that supersedes the crushing of my right foot. And you can see that's why you almost see, always will see me moving around because I can't stand or sit for any long period of time because it starts to grind and hurt. But as, as God kind of entered into my life, she really hated that. So I would sit at home while she was working and and this guy would come over once a week, and we would talk, and I was like, wow, this is, I mean, there's something to this. I mean, I was brought up in the church, but this is different. There's got to be something to this, what this guy's telling me. Now, I want to go a little deeper into my injury just to kind of give you a little insight into what I had to overcome at that time. Um, laying on a hospital bed, well, first of all, fell, injury, go to the hospital, several surgeries, uh, put me back together, sent me to rehab, and all I could do for the weeks that I was in rehabilitation was transfer from the wheelchair to, to my bed and from the wheelchair to the, to the shower or commode. Always sitting, never being able to stand, never being able to put any weight on my legs, which would transfer into my hips. Many a night in that rehabilitation center, I felt alone, as I talked earlier, that when friends would leave, and then you're just kind of, okay, let's flick through the television. Yeah, there's nothing ever on. And make a phone call or do something. It's just, oh, my gosh, like, when am I going to go home? Well, that wasn't as good as I had hoped because um, when I went home, they actually brought an ambulance to the rehabilitation center and transported me in a, an ambulance on a board from the, from the rehab center to my house, to a hospital bed in my living room where I could at least look outside the window. I don't know if that was better or worse, 
but to watch the world pass by as I laid in there, not for days, not for weeks, months, worrying. I had to learn to rewalk when I crushed my foot, and that was pretty simple. Wiggle your toes, you know, get the feeling back, and start to put pressure on it, and they did skin grafts or whatever. This was something totally different. I'm sitting in my hospital bed in my living room, and they're telling me, don't stand up. Like, for how long? Until we tell you. So we don't have a target date? No. So every time that I got an update, they would have to transport me again in a hospital. And sometimes they would come in a chair or whatever, but it would always be taken in an ambulance to go to the doctor's office to do more x-rays or, or CT scans and all this other stuff to find out, was I healing? Now, I would do some sliding motions with my legs to get a little bit of strength back, but it just there was no resistance. It's just what I could move. So again, I felt very alone again. Even though my wife would come home, and I think about this time she started to um, get very ill, and so she ended up on disability and, and stayed at home with me, but she really wasn't with me. We had kind of grown apart by this time. Our, our marriage was really kind of just struggling to, to make it. And I can remember laying in my hospital bed just realizing that this, this may be it. This may be my life from this point forward. Understand this. I had spent countless nights at the hospital with my wife as she went through this process to get on disability, the illnesses, the, the constant back and forth to the hospital. At one point prior to all of this, we had just, we just really decided that there was some struggles that we weren't dealing with. But I still cared about her still wanted to make sure she was okay. But as I laid in that hospital bed in our house, in our living room, and watched day in and day out as she faded away from me, not medically, but mentally, she disconnected from me. She never sat next to me in the hospital bed to comfort me. She never did much as far as taking care of me at one point against doctor's orders, and yes, this is on me. I'm accountable for everything that I do wrong. I try to be, at least. Against doctor's orders, I stood up and said, I can't do this no more, and I took five steps. Felt an excruciating pain, and probably why I still feel pain today, because I wasn't going against doctor's orders. But I, I just felt so alone that I just thought, this is the, this is the opportunity that I need to take to step out on my own and do something that would get my life back. And it hurt. Feeling that this was my only option was that I, I couldn't lay in the hospital bed and just feel so alone in a house with someone that I had married to. We spent 17 years at the end together. In John chapter 11, we read about Lazarus. 
And again, just real quickly through it, some things I don't understand and, you know, it baffles me that Jesus wept even though he says prior to that that, he will rise, that Lazarus will rise again. He knew that he would be able to bring him from the grave. So why would he weep? Because he cared for Lazarus. He was a very trusted friend. But let's look at Mary, Lazarus' um, sister. How long was Lazarus sick before she sent for Jesus? Now, I would imagine, you know, if I got in with the Messiah, probably not going to wait around too long, maybe, right? That would be one option. We'd call him pretty soon. Hey, you know, come help, come heal him, make him feel better, get, him, get up and walk. But eh, if you've got an end, maybe you don't use it unless you have to. So maybe Lazarus got sicker. And so it's the finally she sends, sends uh, word to Jesus. And here's what we know. That, that Jesus stayed where he was for two more days once he found out. So again, it seems very, it just baffles me that why would he stay when a friend of his he knows he's going to die or going to sleep, as the scripture says, instead of just rushing to him. But again, it's sort of the prophecy could have been fulfilled. So there's some time frame there. But at verse 39, it says, again, as they go to the tomb, that Lazarus had been there for at least four days inside the tomb. So I'm sure that Mary, as she watched this loved one fade, and perish that she felt alone. I have, I, Jesus is my friend. Where is he when I need him? Where is he yet when I, in my time of need? And I've cried that out on numerous occasions. But it must have been hard for her to watch this, hoping that, that Jesus would show up. Have you ever stood by a casket and watched a loved one body lay there and wondered, what will I do in the coming days? What will it be like to be without this person, this loved one that I have? What will I do? What will fill my time? What about, have you ever have you ever sat in a hospital room with a loved one and the doctors told you that they're not going to make it? That they won't come out of the situation that they're in? But it's up to you as to what the next steps will be. It's up to you to make the decision to either leave the machines on and pray for a miracle or turn them off and watch them pass. That's one of the hardest things that I, I believe I've ever had to do in my life is to love someone enough to grant them their final wish and not to live on, on life support. But I felt so alone in that decision so alone in that struggle. The, the burden of that, that responsibility was so great. 
during this time of year, as I, as I said in the, in the, the welcome, there are so many people that are struggling with loneliness. The pandemic has made it even worse. We've, we've isolated ourselves from, from different reasons, different things going on in our lives. There's so much disconnect from society, from the congregation, from loved ones, from all types of things. We spiral out of control when we get inside of our head. And that's, I, I love what Jason said, that feeling alone is different than being alone. You see, we all have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior if you've been baptized for the remission of your sins and you live out that, that, met, that life. Because, see, you're not alone. Genesis 2, 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone, and I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God knew, even in the beginning, that it wasn't good for us to be alone. In Deuteronomy 31, 6, it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Isaiah 41, 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my righteous hand, right hand. And one that I, I turn to a lot. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And there's many, many more scriptures that we could go through but I guess my message is this. If you've ever felt alone before, if you've ever struggled with feeling like there wasn't anybody in your life, I'd ask that you would come forward and sit with me. I'm gonna have the elders come forward and they're gonna pray over us. And this time of year, during this season of life, loneliness is real but it's a feeling of loneliness that we have to overcome. It's not those things that we are alone unless we pull ourselves away. So again, if you've ever felt alone, I ask you, it's not an invitation. It's just so that we can respond as a congregation and that elder can, elders can pray over us to help us to deal with loneliness in any way, shape, or form. So if you would, please come forward if you would. For those of you that are still standing, I would ask one thing. I understand it's a little uncomfortable to come forward and to admit that you felt alone. But I remember Corey used to say, if you're with me, knock. So if you're with me, if you've ever felt alone, would you just let me know that you're with me by knocking, please? Thank Father, you. you hear our prayers. together today, acknowledging that uh, oftentimes um, we feel alone. I pray that we'll have the courage, the understanding, the recognition that you are always with us, that you provide for us, that in times of um, loneliness and difficulty, um, you continue to be present. And I pray, Father, that we as a church family will be present for one another. We'll be engaged in one another's lives. 
and that we will find um, together a meaning, a meaning, a hope, a promise um, that can be found only in you. The world offers many things, most of which come up empty. Um, the promises that um, Satan provides to us and for us, invites us to engage in, um, are hollow, and they come up short. But in you there is promise, there is expectation, there is reward, there is presence. Father, please bless us as we seek to serve you. May all that we do be to your glory and to your honor, and may we be um, um, able to impact and influence the lives of others by our presence um, with them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.